0: Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. Committed to bringing higher finance to lower carbon. Named the most innovative investment bank for climate change and sustainability by The Banker. That's the power of global connections. Bank of America, North America. Member FDIC. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have Bruce Tuchman. He helped bring a number of U.S channels overseas, number of uh, television channels like Sundance and AMC and MTV and Nickelodeon and a bunch of others, uh, global, uh, and we really have a fascinating conversation, uh, especially when we get loose in the podcast portion, talking about the future of video and what it's going to look like. Uh, this is an industry very much in flux with both a, a rich um, co- collection of original content he describes us at at peak television and there's nowhere to go but down from here because it is so overwhelmingly excellent uh, but the nature of television is changing the nature of content distribution is not going to be what it used to be where it's just a fat uh, cable or or satellite to your house and you buy a package and that that's it video on demand streaming downloading these are having major changes on how the industry uh, is progressing, and it's really in a period of of dynamic flux. So if you at all are interested in content creation, or in uh, how the nuts and bolts of of content gets distributed around the world, or really what the state of media is gonna look like in five, 10, 20 years, I think you'll really enjoy this conversation. So with no further ado, my conversation with Bruce Tuckman. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Bruce Tuckman. He began his career as an M and A attorney at Skadden Arps before entering the world of television, where he helped bring such brands as MTV, Nickelodeon, Sundance Channel, and AMC to a global audience taking American content to more than 140 countries around the world. Bruce Tuchman, welcome to Bloomberg. Very good to be here. I appreciate you having me. So I found your background really fascinating. Um, You're an expert on video content, on modern television streaming and video on demand. So we'll get into Amazon, Netflix, and a whole bunch of, of related companies in a few minutes. But- you began your career as a corporate M&A attorney. How do you go from that to essentially running a handful of television networks?
1: Um, it seemed less circuitous, I suppose, to me. Um, I always had a passion for the entertainment business. Um, I also um, had really wanted to. I I'd taken time after college. I moved abroad to Spain. To develop uh, some of my international business skills, my Spanish language skills. At that point, as a young man living in Spain, I decided grad school may make sense. I was thinking of taking the GMAT or the LSAT. It had been a while since I was doing the cutting edge math that you need for the GMAT. Right. So I took the LSAT and I went to law school and I worked for Skadden. I had a phenomenal phenomenal training ground and and learned a lot but my passion had always been the entertainment business and i reached a point in my career there after about five years or so that i thought i don't have kids yet not married i could make the shift with less risk and i really started developing this passion this idea that if you if you don't follow through with your passion in life you're not gonna be happy later in life so I did that and no regrets for that
0: so so how do you go from scan to MTV that is not a natural career path or is it was there a transactional relationship with Viacom or anything and suddenly
1: someone said hey you'd be perfect for this it's a great question there isn't that and it may not seem natural but what I had been doing Back in uh, late 80s, early 90s, I really focused on international MA and and corporate, so I spent a couple of years of my time in Skadden's London office. So I was learning a lot about cross-border transactions and it just so happened, at that time pretty much, in the cable and satellite business, these big brands from the US were beginning their international expansion. And they had a lot of great ideas, a lot of creative passion, but they didn't really have a lot of people who knew how to structure one's presence in an international market. How would the media laws and regulations affect a business? How do you structure a joint venture with a foreign partner? So I had those skills. So I came on board originally to spearhead the legal and business affairs aspects of MTV and Nickelodeon's launch into the international markets.
0: Huh, that's quite interesting. So really between Spain and London – that was your graduate school for taking television brands, content brands, overseas.
1: It was the beginning, and I had some really amazing insights. Uh, I worked on one project in particular, which was the restructuring of News Corp's debt back in the uh, early 90s. That was, uh, so that was
0: for Skadden in the London office. News Corp is, at that point... Not really a behemoth in U.S., but huge in in the U.K.
1: And also uh, amazingly taken to task for uh, funding Sky. Sky was their baby that was bringing the whole ship down. Um, Now, we all know what happened. Uh, They restructured, and Sky is a behemoth and an incredible business. Uh, But it was fascinating being there for the early years of Sky and and seeing what that business came to. And it was very um, eye-opening for me. Next, along the career path, you
0: ended up taking uh, MGM networks worldwide. Tell us what that experience was like. Sure. How, How did that start? What obstacles did you run into what were the surprises
1: along the way? Sure. I So after I I spent a year doing legal with MTV, and, and then I shifted to Nickelodeon to the business side, and I was primarily responsible for spurring the growth and the launch of international channels all over the world. Again, this was a company that had very few, if any, channels outside of the U.S., and with me leading a team and a lot of other good people, we launched this network to 125 plus people. Was so it
0: was it all at once you rolled out to 100 plus I countries a good, or was it- yeah, I was a good it,
1: six years right. working that. And um, so I learned a lot about the international cable and satellite business. Mm-hmm. It was at its birth more or less then. Um, so I went to MGM after that because I think the challenge I wanted after- bringing this great kids network all over the world. Um, I, I was really passionate about this business of launching new brands, linear, what we call linear now, pay TV networks. Mm-hmm. So I had this opportunity with MGM. And what I loved about it is MGM really did not have anywhere, in just a couple places, branded TV channels. It's a great brand. It's the biggest modern film library in Hollywood, at least at the time. And uh, that was a gaping opportunity uh, that hadn't been uh, covered by MGM. So so before we get
0: too deep into MGM, how do overseas markets for television and video differ from, from U.S. markets? What's the demand like? What is the taste
1: like? And how does the regulatory and corporate structure compare to what we have here? Great questions. As you can imagine, every country may be a little different. The international markets- uh, we're probably a generation behind the U.S. in terms of just rolling out the physical plant. Uh-huh. I'll give you an example: uh, in the '90s, when I started bringing channels to India, of all places, cable and satellite was just born. There were no homes. Now there are more cable and satellite homes in India by far than the U.S. Mm. So all this stuff developed very quickly. Um, every market's a little different, but. Many, many markets now, uh, you'll find a majority of households have pay TV. Not all markets, but many. Uh, Regulatory-wise, as you can imagine, over the years, when this business just emerged, it was uh, a wild west. There are few regulations. Now you look at a lot of markets, it's tougher and tougher by the day. In terms of programming, yeah.
0: I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest this week is Bruce Tuckman. He was the head of MGM Worldwide Networks, as well as AMC Global, uh, taking U.S. television networks to over 140 countries around the world. Let, let's Before we get into AMC, let's talk a little more about MGM and the massive library of classic and films that they had, What are the tastes like overseas? How did you find the MGM brand played in Asia and Europe?
1: How did that work? Right, I think overseas again, depending on the market, you're going to have a combination of two things that work in pay television: Uh, local content, obviously, is big, and I'd say the the more removed people are from the English language, media markets, the local scene is much bigger. So Japan, Korea, India, uh, that's by far the dominant form of content will be content produced indigenously in local language. But every market in the world, there is room for Hollywood content. It is very popular in larger or smaller degrees, but it's always very popular. Now, what I saw with MGM was the opportunity to take a brand that arguably has some of the most long-term goodwill of any brand. I mean, it is synonymous with film. How, how big is that library? Library at the time was 4,100 films. Wow. So the combination of some great films and the brand, well, that that's what all pay TV was at that point in time. If you have a good brand, you have good content, That's what subscribers are going to want and what cable operators are going to want because they don't want to get behind unknown brands, unknown content. It's an easy sell. MGM meant to many people in the world. MGM means great movies, and the movies themselves were great movies. So it was a fantastic run, and we went from about zero channels, and in 10 years, we had tens and tens of millions of subscribers in about 140 countries all around the world. So now let's talk a little bit
0: about AMC, which – over the past couple of years, has become a monster, monster brand, not just for what I I think of them as American movie classics, where kind of where, what they began, but for some really definitive original content. So how was the AMC brand different than MGM,
1: and how did it play overseas? Well, a couple of interesting things. So I think for the core demo, perhaps that that is right now watching walking dead and have watched breaking bad um, don't forget um, mad men right and that mad is men is also another one
0: i'd say uh, a- by the way these are those are three pretty much definitive original programs over the past 10 15 you know throwing the sopranos it's hard and then seinfeld the decade before that uh, that pretty much dominates what what people have been at least talking about.
1: I, I agree. You know, you don't sell Game of Thrones short either, but mm-hmm. um it was brand defining obviously for AMC network and I th- and I think a, a lot of the people watching it now that demo may not even remember American movie classics. They think of AMC right. in those terms.
0: It's Walking Dead and Breaking
1: Bad and all this not bringing
0: up sh- baby. That's not that's not the core not process. That's correct. So That raises the question, how important is the development of original content to a branded
1: channel like AMC? Huge. There have been um, evolutions in this pay TV market. It used to be dominated by libraries, second-run library content. If you think about even HBO and Showtime in the earlier years, it was the second- Run, perhaps, of of movies. It was movies, and it was stand-up comedy specials, and that was pretty much it. Correct. So the market got more and more competitive, and original programming became necessary to distinguish a channel from others in a more competitive market. And especially now, with the slowing and, in fact, declining subscriber universe, um, you got to do everything you can to reach a big audience, and you just can't cut corners by showing cheap reruns anymore. That will not work. Um, so that that's the state we are in now with having to invest in all this original programming. So uh, a question that I had that I think is,
0: I, I imagine other people would also, is how similar is the taste of consumers of, of film and television watchers overseas to us in the United States? Does Don Draper play overseas? Is that the sort of thing? Does Walter White have a resonance in Japan? You know, these are really definitive US characters on all ends of the spectrum. How are, how are these shows and how are these characters
1: um, uh, accepted in, in other markets? Correct. Uh, for, for, I'd say, the last six or seven or eight years, the what we're calling peak TV or the drama renaissance, this is a global phenomenon. Uh, not hi, just here in the United States, not the just golden here. age of television is in a U.S. phenomenon. Yeah, and only golden phenomena. age of television may have – I think there's more nuance to that, but the top quality dramas – produced in the English language are are really romping around the world. Mm -hmm. Um, So you can go- Tell us what's big overseas right now. Well, I mean, Game of Thrones is huge. Really? Walking Dead. um, Stranger Things from Netflix uh, Uh has done incredibly well in terms of seeing what the global demand for that is. Um, Mr. Robot's doing terrifically. No kidding. Yeah, so, so these shows are really hot all over the world. Now, it depends on the market. Do they dominate? Every market like they do in the US? No, not necessarily, because as I mentioned before, a place like India has uh, an incredible local production industry. They're they're broadcasting um, original programming developed in India in a dozen different languages. However, these shows break through. These dramas break through in every single market all around the world. May not happen five years from now, but we have been in this phase of the biz- business for the last... I'd say, eight or so years where where this is ver- is working.
0: Let me throw a curveball at you. I remember moving out of the city to the suburbs a dozen-plus years ago and not being happy that I couldn't get BBC America, which I was used to when I lived in Manhattan for 20 years, so I had to go to a satellite instead of the local cable. Now yeah. it's everywhere. But I recall shows like Doctor Who and Top Gear really being global phenomena yes. a dozen years ago was the BBC the first network to really take themselves
1: global? Did they set the uh, the original model for this? I, I think uh, the pioneers were both the major Hollywood studios that have always had incredible sales arms for their TV and movie production all around the world. And BBC, I would also put up in that category, especially within the Commonwealth nations. BBC was always an important brand and always had an extensive network of channels and programming. And they put a lot of money um, resources into getting that stuff all around the world.
0: I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to masters in business on Bloomberg radio. My special guest today is Bruce Tuckman. He is a former MA lawyer from Scandinarps who entered television and ended up taking over a number of channels uh, such as Sundance, AMC, MGM, and bringing them uh, global to over 140 countries. You're on the board of advisors of Parrot Analytics. Sure, I'm a board member. Board member. Let's talk about what it means to try and measure audience. Um, In the US, we have Nielsen uh, ratings, which has been a lot of criticism and complaints that it doesn't capture um, time shifting. It doesn't capture a lot of things. What's it like
1: trying to measure viewership overseas. Well, I think it's funny, even today after this election, we're seeing that taking a sample like Nielsen does, Mm -hmm. Nielsen has 30,000 or so paneled homes, only recently stopped using paper to document what people are watching, and they're extrapolating from that what people are watching. That is part of the basic um, underlying concern about extrapolation-based, panel-based surveying of TV audiences. What- we, we get so much information on the web right. about website
0: performance. We could track how long people are on a site, where they're coming from, how how quickly they bounce off, where they click on the page, how, how many different things they Correct. look at. It would make sense that there should be some technology that does that on the video side.
1: Well, sure. And that's what Parrot Analytics is doing. So if you think about... The internet's a huge billion, 3 billion, 3.7 billion people are using the internet. Every day, if you think about what you may be doing, if you like a show, we mentioned Game of Thrones before, you may press a like on Facebook, you may read about um, Jon Snow on um, Wikipedia, you may follow something on Reddit, post something, you may even, this happens a lot of markets, uh, illegally download four hours. So a company like Parrot, Mm -hmm. Parrot is listening and scraping to all of these messages in the internet listening at everything but more importantly weighing it all if you download four hours and pirate it of game of thrones you're pretty passionate about a show if you're liking it on facebook you like the show but maybe not as much now if you weigh all that together you could come up with a real um actual, genuine amount of data that people are expressing demand for TV shows, which I think is far more compelling than just having surveys where you're extrapolating. This- but,
0: but don't we run into potentially the same problem that, hey, we're not actually measuring votes, but we're we're surveying, we're looking at what people say and do about candidates or about shows and trying to draw
1: a conclusion about it from that model. The difference is there's no conclusion being drawn. It's empirical. It is, okay, we've measured now a billion data points. These are powerful computers, and this is the facts. No conclusions or extrapolation to be drawn. This is what people are saying right now. So, this is going to revolutionize the business. It's going to happen more and more. Obviously, uh, I-, I think a lot of these data measurement companies now are good compliments to Nielsen. There are $60 billion of uh, transactions going on based on Nielsen. But at some point, the data has to come in and inform a little bit. So,
0: so let's talk a little bit about that big data. H- how can we use big data and analytics to, to figure out how valuable
1: specific content is? You can because you can see what people are saying out there. And it's not only see what people are saying empirically, You actually can see who they are, what their demographics are. You can find out what products they like. You can say, wow, this Game of Thrones person, I can see this person. I can see this person also likes Lincoln Motors and also likes Dan and Yogurt. Um, So we're only at the beginning of all of that. And I think over the long run, a paper-based survey is still based on essentially um, Johannes Gutenberg's uh, ideas. It's going to be very different. It's Is the technology
0: um, consistent between the U.S. and overseas? Can you generate the same sort of analytics? And uh, is it as accurate there as here or vice versa? Yeah, because,
1: I mean, it's a global phenomena, the web. Uh, There's no cultural differences from the U.S. to Europe to Asia. No, I mean, when you're just measuring what people are watching by using the Internet and using these sources where people are expressing their demand for TV – you're just finding what people are really saying. Um, so it's it's young, this industry, but it's powerful. Each year it evolves even stronger and stronger.
0: I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My guest today is Bruce Tuckman. He has taken a number of U.S. television channels worldwide to over 140 countries. Let's talk a little bit about streaming uh, and video on demand and, and what that means You know, when I was a kid, we had the three networks and a handful of syndication, and by the time I got to high school, this thing called HBO came along, and uh, we had movies and curse words and stand-up. It was was revelatory. Today, uh, there's content from everywhere. You have not only the networks, but all the pay channels. There seems to be everybody producing their own content. I'm a huge fan of, of FX, um, AMC, IFC. There's a whole run of shows that are spectacular. That's before we get to Netflix, Amazon Prime. I'm sure I'm forgetting uh, others. There's just a, an embarrassment of riches when it comes to original programming uh, is this really a golden age of television, and and how long can this last for?
1: Yeah, I. It's they call it peak TV, but I call it peak TV in a way that it's peaked. Um, it's already peaked. We're it, already past I, the peak. Well, I think it's just a matter of time, and I'll explain why. Um, there's about 500 original narrative dramas going to be produced in the U.S. this year. Five hundred. Five hundred. You can never absorb all that. That's probably around three times as much as when Mad Men came out seven or eight years ago. Really? Yeah. So what there is, like any business, I suppose, there's a copycat phenomenon because the success of AMC, FX, even what HBO and then Showtime and Starz Encore is doing, people have realized quality dramas, not only rate, they define brands. They, They... start the conversation in the morning they can add incredible value so everyone's rushing to it is that sustainable is the question I don't think it's sustainable because people aren't watching all of this stuff anyway you're finding overall with a few exceptions like perhaps Walking Dead or um, Game of Thrones you're seeing ratings decline you're seeing the overall cable universe decrease by now, what's becoming scary, significant, single-digit percentages each year, um, and you're seeing advertising go down. So the economic basis, especially for basic cable TV, the overall revenue pool is declining. To keep investing in this high-quality drama is not going to be sustainable. So, so I think so that's going to shrink.
0: What what is this, the cord-cutting phenomena of basically the millennials um, – who, who aren't enthralled with the whole run of channels they get with a cable package. They just want internet service and they'll buy what they want on demand and not work. What does this mean to the future of the content industry? And, and is this why you think we're
1: we're post-peak TV? Yes, I think so. I think... The basic cable bundle is under the most pressure because there's cord cutting, cord shaving. You've seen or cord the,
0: shaving, meaning you know fully cut it, but you just go to the. Basic I want less g-
1: stuff. Why do I want all the three premium movie services when maybe I just want HBO and I'll get Netflix or, you know that that could be one thing or new household formation. Younger people aren't bothering. Um, but the fact just that it's shrinking, even by single percentage digits, this is an industry that has never seen that before. Uh-huh. It's gonna it's a very hard learning curve to learn how to adapt to that.
0: And this isn't gonna get better. This is only gonna get worse as the millennials it, it, as it, the pig moves through the python, so it, to speak.
1: It's gonna get worse. And and for basic cable, nothing's looking good in the right direction because there's too many basic cablers in this original narrative drama space. Their revenue base is shrinking. The competition's intense, and at the same time, it the format isn't so great. When you're breaking a show for commercials every fifteen minutes, sometimes you're conforming your storytelling to what may be a very antiquated format. Eight
0: you, minutes, six minutes, yeah. Seven so minute. you got
1: to build a little peak, and then you go away right. for four minutes. Now, if you look at what's going on on Amazon or Netflix. They don't care about the length of the show. 40 right. minutes. Out, they're telling 36 a sto- minutes, right. And they're telling a story. And the stories are compelling and they don't break off. So I think both from a creative standpoint, business model standpoint, basic cable's in big trouble. The a la carte networks, the streamers are in much better shape. Uh huh. And younger people seem to find them convenient, but so do older people as well.
0: I, I have to ask a question about the commercials and what you've defined. I mean, other than the Super Bowl, I don't remember watching a commercial in the past decade. Every television has a DVR on it. They're now 4,000 hours big. They're giant. Um, I assume everybody else uses DVRs. And uh, all all you do is, if you want to start something, uh, even if it's not on DVR, you pause it, you do 15 minutes worth of chores and now you have no
1: commercials to worry about. Certainly, uh, live viewing is shifting more and more each year to DVRs or getting catch-up on demand on your cable system, uh, downloading something from iTunes that you've missed. Um, that's happening more and more. There, it's going to be—it's really going to be hard to to stop that. That—that um, that is a challenge that that's profound for the industry, and there doesn't seem to be a solution around that. Let's talk
0: about the DVD. Uh, for for you youngins out there, they actually used to put video content on these round silver discs. I, I think you could still buy them at various stores. I, is that over or is the DVD finished or is this going to be a format and Blu-ray and, and 4K and, and everything else? Is this going to
1: have any sort of legs? Sure. Um, it will get harder and harder, obviously, in smaller quantities to manufacture at economies of scale this kind of technology. However... I look at some markets like Japan. I mean, Japan really has a robust DVD business and seems to be a part of a lot of people's lifestyle. Go to the corner DVD store each night and pick something up. So, Don't
0: they have a robust album, like an LP, a full 33s? I think that's, and as well as CDs, they haven't moved away from the physical content. There
1: is that. And, And let's face it, there's very few forms of predecessor media that completely vanishes. People are still buying radios, right? They they still do. It's not as big a business. You can go, though, into any Best Buy or Radio Shack around here and probably buy a transistor radio. Now, they're going to have to produce less at better prices. So I don't think it necessarily goes away right away, but it right. but it's obviously fading and it, it will over time.
0: Let, let's talk about the difference between streaming versus downloading. So when you download something, you essentially own it or right. rent it for a period of time versus just streaming on demand. How are those two businesses different? And is either of those um, likely to become the dominant methodology or are they going to coexist?
1: They, they have to coexist. And I think download is getting um, a dangerous short shrift, by which I mean, it used to be my personal frustration as a guy on planes a lot Yes, is with Netflix. I can't download anything, I can't watch anything, I can't stream in an airplane. We all get frustrated about that, but that is, let's say, an elitist problem, maybe. That is very much a first world issue. But you know what, it's a bigger third world issue. You know what I'll tell you? Because think about this, in a developing world, it costs a lot of money to stream. Bandwidth is actually really slow, yet on-demand content is really valued. So what a lot of people are doing in countries that represent one, 2, 3 billion people, they'll go, for instance, to a mall where there's free Wi-Fi. They'll watch there, but where they can download, huh. that's where they download. So they download everything for free, go home and watch it. So the idea of even temporary downloads is so necessary for the long-term health. Of the streaming business and not just to please your consumers I mean if you're in Dubai or if you're in Thailand and you're paying $40 in data charges to download you're gonna be upset at your provider but I would also say for the studios the producers of content themselves who get wigged out about downloads if you don't offer temporary downloads to your paying streaming customers it'll be pirated then the next day so you make the choice. Really? Well, yeah, because if something is available at a reasonable cost, you're already subscribing to a streaming service, right. and it's there day and date with the debut of the show in the U.S., you'll get it on your streaming service, and everyone gets paid in the value chain. And if it's not there or you can't download it and you're going to have to pay a fortune to stream it and you're never going to do it because the quality of streaming is bad anyway, someone's just going to go home on their connected broadband and pirate it.
0: So let's talk about piracy. How significant is piracy, how serious do you think piracy is
1: um, to the content producing uh, side of the world? It, look, it's huge and there's all different stats on measurement, um, but it hasn't stopped um, the producer of Game of Thrones being in business. They're making a ton right. of money. It's just how much more money should they be making? I don't know, nor does anyone know the answer, but some of the solutions are for instance, I think iTunes did a great job of offering really an easy interface, a fast download at an affordable price, which kind of made it almost a no brainer. You know, I don't care. Let's not rip it off because it's it's really painless. It's a couple of
0: bucks, five bucks for a movie. Why wouldn't you do that? And it's 99 cents
1: for a song. Right. the, the video business has to be doing that. You have to offer people, most importantly, big shows literally simultaneously day and date all around the world. If Game of Thrones is here at 10 p.m. one night and they're doing this now, it's got to be shown everywhere else. Otherwise, the
0: world. someone will pirate it here and
1: send it over there. Right. Yeah. Or pirate it over there because it's it's all connected now.
0: We've been speaking with Bruce Tuckman. He used to run MGM Global and AMC International, bringing a number of U.S. channels to 140 different countries around the world. Uh, If you enjoy this conversation about video streaming and on demand, be sure and stick around for our podcast extras where we keep the tape rolling and continue chatting about all things television. Uh, Be sure and check out my daily column on BloombergView.com or follow me on Twitter At Ritholtz, we love your comments and feedback. Be sure and write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America Merrill Lynch. Seeing what others have seen, but uncovering what others may not. Global research that helps you harness disruption. Voted top global research firm five years running. Merrill Lynch, Pierce Fenner & Smith Incorporated. Welcome to the podcast, Bruce. Thank you so much for doing this. This is really uh, quite interesting. When, My pleasure. When we first met and talked about what you did, I was very much intrigued, not just because I'm kind of a, a classic film fan and and really a uh, television idiot, but the idea of taking U.S. content and saying, let's turn this into an international business is really quite fascinating. So um, let's see what questions I missed Before we jump into our favorites, um, oh, Sundance. We really didn't talk about Sundance Hmm. Channel, which I wanted to. So the original Robert Redford Sundance Festival eventually became a channel. And uh, I kind of remember the line, something about honoring Robert Redford's mission to celebrate distinctive
1: storytelling from independent voices. Is that more or less the... uh... That's correct. And I think he's always said it best. Um, And I would add to that because what he's always also said is that's not not otherwise being heard in the mainstream Mm -hmm. media. That makes sense. That's what drove me in terms of the Sundance international expansion. They're doing different things now in the U.S. that I didn't run, I won't speak to, but um, that propelled just in three years I was able to take uh, uh, with my team... That channel from a couple of countries to about 80 countries around the world. With that in mind, when you think about it, uh, the U.S. uh, majors are producing maybe 100, 120 films a year. Mm -hmm. And that's what dominates the pay movie TV channels all over the world. Yet, at Sundance alone, there's thousands of independent films that are submitted. So
0: So wait, 120 U.S. mainstream films per year. Feature films. And... Just submitted to
1: the festival, there's over a thousand, thousands each year. Thousands, and that's wow. just Sundance. So what's, I think, happening and what Robert Redford was speaking to is so much more content is being produced independently, and it's not getting its, let's say, strict fair share of the airtime. Now, some of the f- content may not be great, and a lot of the Hollywood film content is not great either. But I think what allowed us to expand so much and get so much real estate with cable operators all around the world was just simply that premise you're missing a lot of great content and it's actually not that expensive compared to what you're paying for some of the hollywood film content and it's just going to add to a diversity of voices and we'll bring in a lot of and what we did a lot around the world we brought in a lot of local independent films
0: so when i think of robert redford he's an i an icon um, here we are post-election and everybody had on Twitter had, uh, the shot of The Candidate, which was a, a very famous film of his, you know, that now what? Scene, what do we do now? Right. Yeah. That's exactly it. So I saw that last night go around. Um, there, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, go down the list of films, um, that he was, uh, active in. They're just an amazing run of, of movies. But it's such an American brand. Does that play overseas, or or it, a, am I imagining that people overseas are, are are more different from us than perhaps I should?
1: I, it plays overseas in that if there's any brand that's synonymous with independent film, right. it, it, it's Sundance. Now, will your run-of-the-mill guy walking down the street in some country 2,000 miles away know Sundance? Maybe, maybe not, but I think everyone— uh, there's there's a big market wherever you go for independent film, especially independent film that features stories and characters from your own country that isn't just the mass package commercialized stuff you're getting out of Hollywood. Um, so uh, that helps. But particularly in this business of of channels, you're you're selling to usually big cable operators, and the people running these big cable operators they are know. very sophisticated. They've been to Sundance; they're very familiar with it.
0: So let's talk about AMC a little bit. We we were talking earlier about Walking Dead and Mad Men and Breaking Bad. By the time you joined AMC, I'm doing this from memory. I'm guessing Mad Men had already been in production for a while. Correct. And Breaking Bad was, was just starting. Yeah, yeah, and then. Towards the latter end, that's when Walking Dead came. Exactly. So, as this comes first comes out, do you have any idea what sort of a giant cultural impact these are going to have, and how do you think about taking that and applying it to overseas markets?
1: Yeah, uh, it's a great question. Um, Mad Men certainly was. By the way, that is such an um, I again uh, iconic, like just
0: when you think of that. Late fifties, early sixties era, and Don Draper has become an archetype now. Uh, ha- ha- that archetype of of you know the hard drinking, three martini lunch, smoking, womanizing sort of guy. Uh, again, does that play overseas, or is it such a cliche that they eat it up overseas? No,
1: it plays overseas, and interestingly, that guy now. And and his acolytes won the election last night. I don't mean him. I was I thinking. Mean, by the way, it's, as I was saying that, I was going to
0: say something uh, witty about that sort of hard drinking, hard smoking, womanizing. Although Trump doesn't drink, you know, he famously is a teetotaler. But that sort of presidential candidate, and I and I thought better of it. But since you brought it up, I, I, when Bush was president, and you traveled over the overseas there was a sense that he was really looked at as a cowboy. He's from Texas, goes from the gut, invades various countries. There was really a stereotypical American uh, perception of Bush that yeah. way. So so how do you use how the world perceives the United States? As much as they may on occasion criticize us or dislike us or argue with us about different things, they seem to, overseas seems to love American culture.
1: They love American content. It's been interesting in my career because my international career started with Reagan in office. So Reagan and Bush, and I suppose Trump, uh, it it does become difficult just in casual conversations with people um, often. It wasn't like that.
0: Meaning, so uh, my personal experience is you fly into Berlin from New York, and uh, when, when or I flew, recall, trips to London as well. And there was a very diffident, if that's the right word, cool, oh, an American. Like a real, at, at customs, yeah, Canadians were always nice. You go to Montreal or Vancouver or, you know, they, they seem to be very um, uh, friendly to Americans. But the Europeans were de- certainly post uh, the Iraq invasion, there was definitely a, uh, a little bit of a chill. And uh, part of you is like, am I imagining this? And then once Obama was elected and you went overseas, it was a completely different, oh, come on in. It was It was a whole different attitude. And I was like, I recall going back to Berlin and back to London and thinking, you know, it wasn't my imagination. They're much nicer now than they were the last time I was here when when it was a different president. So we have no idea what the rest of the world is going to be like when it comes to Trump, uh, other we, than nervous. I, I, no,
1: I think we have a good idea because you hear a lot. I, I have a lot of friends abroad. I do a lot of business abroad. Um, I, I often find you have to defend and explain U.S. policies for good or for bad. Bill Clinton was also very popular. Um, that's just what it is. But when we're in that position of— people think there's bad developments in the US that does from time to time wind up impacting the political environment of a country you're operating which sometimes bleeds into the regulatory environment which sometimes makes it a little harder really? to get your stuff done. So that uh, I imagine that
0: and then part of me again it's like now you're being paranoid that's not really Well, I'll
1: give, I'll give you an example. So okay. the, so the EU um especially with the UK out I imagine is going to get more aligned with the French and German point of view in terms of regulation of media, which is much stricter than where the Brits have always been, where the Americans have always been. So that will get tighter and tighter. You need diplomacy between the US and the EU if that's lacking, and they're not going to listen to our entreaties to say, loosen up these regs, loosen up, make them more happen. favorable. It's not going to happen. So that's that's where- What can... are the
0: regulations like? In... So just between the US and the UK- we know their libel laws are very different. They're much stricter. In the United States, if if you're slandering a public figure, you actually have to show malicious intent. Yeah. You know, it's an excuse to say, oh, I was innocently wrong. I read it on Facebook or whatever. Um, in the UK, there isn't that. It's a much stricter. You're telling me go to France and England and it's even stricter?
1: Well, I, what I was talking about was content- restrictions or licensing mm-hmm. regulations rather than libel. I can't speak to libel or So let's slander. talk about, about content. Well, let's talk about privacy. Okay. On the other hand, they're much stricter. We've seen hey, that with you. Google,
0: with Google searches. You, yeah. you have to el- delete people's searches in France, which is certainly not the case here. I don't know how Facebook deals with that
1: in, in Europe. Right. So I think as we try to harmonize these regimes, especially for technology that knows no borders, less strict regime here in the US, more strict within the EU, EU. I don't know which way Trump will go on this, but the point is governments have to talk about that. And if governments are not getting along, they don't agree with each other, and that's a big challenge that we face. Huh. That That's really fascinating. Um, but on the other hand... <laughs> Ironically, things may get easier with Russia, which has become very regulated in terms of media. It didn't used to be that way. Um, if well, there's you, one savings grace, I, I don't know that offsets everything else.
0: Well, so, when you say regulated, do you mean you know killing journalists or do you mean their actual- So just
1: for my business, linear TV business, funny quick story, in 1996 or 7, I believe, I did a deal. I launched the Nickelodeon channel in Russia, in Russian- in their emerging pay TV business is a million, two million subscribers. are so proud of that. I went there for launch, it really meant a lot to me. And at that time, I didn't need a broadcast license, I didn't need any interference at all or anything to do with the media authorities. Now, 20 years later, you need several broadcast licenses, you cannot own a majority of your own brand. Right. And the reason, so all of these regulations over time have gotten stricter and stricter. What Gets them less strict or more accommodating to U.S. interests is really through our trade reps, our diplomats, who try to negotiate things that work across the board. So my kind of joke is, it make it easier with Russia because so that's about it. Though. That, that's a but that's a really interesting point,
0: and we really haven't talked about the 800-pound gorilla in the room, which is China. What's it like bringing television to China? Do they want U.S content,
1: how easy are they to deal with? Piracy seems to be rampant there. Tell us about China. U.S. content, too, is hugely popular in China. Local Chinese content is more popular, but China has a fascinating business, which no one even appreciates, and you don't see it in other countries, but I call it AVOD, or advertising video on demand, or free video on demand. How does that work? There are five or six different sites you can put on your laptop, you can get an app for your TV, you can watch on your mobile device, you go, You literally, it's free, and it features first-run, and day -day programming often from U.S. studios and everything else. And you watch it, and it's ad-supported. Really? So instead of like Netflix, and it could be the same- So that's
0: the YouTube model, or or theoretically, the Yahoo model. It is
1: the YouTube model, because it's ad-supported. It's the only- market that can probably do that cuz it's so big. And nobody
0: so it makes sense. It's you have to have volume in the U again, first world issue, we would rather pay up for the premium model or the technology like a DVR to go bypass the advertising. They're happy to take it cuz it's free.
1: I think that's that that could be it. Yes, absolutely. It is
0: now as they start to make more money, are they uh are they going to have
1: the same issue that we have where A little bit of of wealth and people become impatient and they don't want to watch. To be determined, but what's happening in China now, because the wealth really has to get there, a lot of this viewing is on um, probably even better working uh, show me devices, you know, very good handsets, tablets,
0: handsets. And a lot
1: of people are watching that way, especially a lot of the young people. They may not have two or three TVs in their homes. So that's how a lot of content is being watched. And they have more money, they have more time than
0: money. So they're happy to do it if it's free. Sure. Huh. That that's quite fascinating. But before we get to our standard questions, let's let's what else can you tell us
1: about China that we probably don't know? I think um there's questions obviously about the macro economy in China, the banking system, but at least what the I debt, see. Debt huge amounts of debt. But o- I mean from, from what you do, what do you see there? Booming. Booming. Entertainment booming. Uh, it, really? was, it will soon be the largest movie market in the world. That's it's not
0: already? I just assume given the number of people. It's
1: about to cross that threshold. Uh, obviously, that has already changed so much if you think about what's being shown in our own theaters. I, I read a while ago that because the overseas
0: um, rights are so valuable, that very often when there is an uh, expensive film to be made, even the storyline has to be built so that it's going to be a winner in China and you you pre-sell the foreign rights before you even make the film. So where it used to be perhaps that the Chinese was the bad guy, now it's a Cold War enemy, it's the Koreans, it's the Russians, it's somebody,
1: not, uh-oh, it's evil China. You're not going to have that made. If you're producing a mass market movie where you want to break the bank in terms of box office, if you're not thinking about how things are going to go over in China? You've just cut off nearly half of your potential revenue, or at wow. least that's the way we're going. So why would anyone make that business decision? Sort of like making a car and deciding I will not ever put the drivers the the wheel on the right side for the driver. So so it, it you, just,
0: you give up the UK, you give up Japan, you give up any of the UK uh, ex- former yeah. territories, Australia, that, right, right, so, where that they still so are. You,
1: you, you gotta you gotta adapt.
0: Yeah, um, I, I think it was in Gwila where we uh, rented a car and they pull it around and I'm like, oh, that's right. The-
1: exactly. <laughs> and you ever drive that for the first time? Yeah, oh yeah. You just basically,
0: my, my rule of thumb was um, just make sure that you're, you're, what was worse was we were driving a left-hand drive on the, Oh, uh, uh, that, was, that was the car. It showed up where they pull up on the wrong side of the road yeah. with the left hand. So my thing was just make sure that the curb is next to me. So in the US, the curb is next to the passenger. Now you have to be, so wherever you go. And, and lefts and rights got to be a little confusing. It's really it easy. I'm
1: still amazed that they will let you drive instantly because I think for people who haven't done it before, I'm not sure if they're worse drivers drunk or if they're worse doing that. It's very dangerous. I was going to say
0: sober it's not difficult but you go to a dinner you have not even drunk you have a a drink or two with dinner and you're a little i we went to this place and i drove back from it and the first five minutes of the drive back i'm on the u.s side of the road and i was sober enough clear you know a drink with dinner is not gonna someone my size is not gonna make me that compromised but for the first uh, it feels like 5 minutes was probably the first 30 seconds oh gee i'm on the wrong side of the road i have right. to get on the I mean, right but my, what, so, by the way what country was it sweden that they stopped at noon and reversed the sides i,
1: think I they might have I, I don't remember if it was sweden well, or somewhere else but literally everybody stopped one no, day and but my point is a a drunken person driving in the us all right is Shouldn't be driving, and they're dangerous. And a neophyte person who's never driven on the other side of the road in the UK is also a dangerous person. Right. Maybe and not sh-
0: quite as dangerous, but it could be close. It could be close. And it's, then, and then a trying turn. a stick shift. With you, the left well, hand. a stick shift is easy, but you make the turn, and you know your brain goes through a certain exactly. set of muscle memories. Especially a, a right, a left turn here is a right turn there and it's just too easy to make the turn and end up on the wrong side. That's how I ended up in the wrong side of the road. You yeah. come out of a driveway and it makes sense from a restaurant, mm-hmm. makes sense to stay but I digress. So <laughs> so um uh, I don't know how we got to that point, no. but it's, it's oh the
1: Chinese film market and how yeah, you can't. Get, you can't, can, so can't ignore. So it, it now. comes. This is really going to
0: drive content. China's going to help drive content for the future. Of course. So I know I only have you for a uh, a finite amount of time. Okay. Let Let's jump to our standard questions. You got it. And um, you know, I only briefly talked about you at Arps. So you're at Arps. You're doing M and A work. How did you end up? What was the transition from lawyer to
1: television channel executive. How did that come about? Um, you know, you become a more senior associate, as I've been doing, and you get to the point. If you're doing well, you run your first or second big deal, and it's exciting, you learn a lot. Meet and a lot of people. Meet a lot of people, but then you realize, you know what? I'm going to be doing this around the clock for another four or five years if I can become partner. I've learned a lot, and um, but I- I've always been driven just by passion. Uh And I didn't want to give up that opportunity. So it took a determined effort. This was before the internet. I sent out cold, hard copy resumes. you looked for it? I looked. Really? Yeah. I I really... um,
0: And you had done enough television-related work that you had an expertise in it, and you could talk about
1: B-Sky-B and everything else. Yeah, but more so I I did a lot of international work, which I think was even more valued Uh because there's plenty of people who know television at the time, at least in terms of TV branded channels they're warning out a lot of people who knew how to set things up internationally so you,
0: you're sending mail out you're coming from a firm with a great reputation who was the first entity that,
1: that- so I got a, MTV Networks among others said come on in and I was thrilled I was a young man I th- Thirty maybe? And I'm like, this is the coolest thing. Right. MTV happened to me. back way back in the eighties and nineties, MTV was as hip as it I got. I just wanted the business card. I yeah. just wanted that business card. And uh I tell my kids now because things are different, I say it was the Google then. You just gotta right. understand. It's like that, what do you a think fair of Google? Of-
0: that uh, in terms of hipness, that that might be there was a period of time where MTV was was huge. Yeah. Absolutely huge. And and around that time was when you um, took them international
1: yeah I mean I, I helped I was uh, more uh, I was coming up in my career then so I was part of a team that really did that uh, but it was great work because uh MTV was so influential in my life because it came right at that you know I was 17 or so when it came out. right and uh, yeah it's about right we're about the same age. yeah and that was you know that was my home base for years up until I probably had kids and then it became news channels but um so
0: what do you kids find cool and hip today that's the MTV
1: of of the modern era? Is it is it Snapchat? Is it things like that? Or I, I hope my 13-year-old my won't get mad at me for this story, but she once said to me, Dad, I want a TV in my room. I go, why? You don't watch TV. She goes, well, no. Jordan, her older sister, has one. I go, yeah, but you don't ever watch it. She goes, um, yeah, right. I just, I just want a big iPad on my wall. And that's what she's looking at is. Yeah. So there, every really, there's so little linear watching going on, and it's just not my kids. It's
0: it's the generation. There's it's no generation. Doubt, there's no doubt about that. So you mentioned you were part of a team. Let let's talk about your mentors.
1: Who who mentored your career? Um, you know, I had a lot of I, a handful of people who really inspired me throughout my career. So um, I wasn't one of those kind of people who've traveled through my companies with a boss who got moved to these other companies. I forged that on my own. But uh, big inspirations to me at Skadden, there were two attorneys in particular, a guy named Finn Fogg, who was a big M&A guy from the 80s and 90s, uh, Just uh, not just a a brilliant lawyer, but uh, I learned from him how to be cool as a lawyer, just how to be charismatic, what's important, what isn't. Um, they don't teach that in law school. They don't teach that in law school. So I really learned a lot from him. Another attorney there, Nancy Lieberman really taught me the value of how hard you have to work for perfection. That's not good enough that you can't have a typo. You shouldn't have a typo. People are paying you a lot of money, not just for your substance, but everything else. I learned a lot from her. Um, I think, um, I was also inspired a lot by, when I worked at MGM, Alex Yamanajian, who was uh, Kirk Kikorian's right-hand man who ran the studio. the Just a very good-faith man who believed a lot in the principles he espoused, looked out for his people, but also challenged people, um, and had a, just ran a tight and a smart ship. Um, Tom Freston inspired me at MTV Networks because I just think... Is the first time I saw someone who who always put creative first. But that made sense because, you know, these are a lot of people treat the media business like they're businesses. They get too focused on uh the balance sheet and the P L without realizing you gotta make the product hot and you gotta make the brand hot and you gotta value those kind of people who can figure that out. I, I just finished reading, we'll get to
0: books in a few minutes, but I just finished reading to Pixar um, and beyond by the the former CFO who was, uh, Lawrence Levy was recruited um, by Steve Jobs to basically come rescue Pixar. And um, amongst other things, he said their secret sauce was how the corporate side, how the finance side, essentially left the creative alone. And it was actually built in to the corporate culture and the entire structure hey the geniuses who are creating toy story you're not going to you can't mess with that no notes no you know movie executive saying hey uh can we can we bring in a girl to this uh you know a toy to be woody's friend or whatever it is the sort of nonsense that you hear about with that it's that same concept of of you have to def- keep the it, creative side it, separate it's
1: still art and i i would ask you look at any media company right now and their story and where they are and their evolution and their arc and more often than not you can explain it as to who's ruling the house. Is it the uh, right brain or the left brain? Uh, uh, side of the brain. Um the so, other... so
0: when you see a mediocre television show, when you see a, a film, do, do you ever look at it and say, oh, you could see the, the, the accountants messed around with this?
1: Definitely. You can see all the compromises. The suits got the, the involved. The suits or whatever or when it becomes so obvious why they skimped on this character or they put that in or whatever and and that's the challenge for movies because sometimes you know it, it looks that way not always i i have one other great mentor though in tv business uh, a guy named bruce paisner who's the ceo and president of the international Emmy organization a long-term hearst executive i mean for years he has just been a good friend of mine and a great leader and a incredibly gracious and wonderful sounding board um so th- those have been my mentors, and so so let's talk about um, certain business people
0: who influenced um, your concept. Who who affected how you look at running a studio, running a channel, running a bringing a U.S. property international.
1: Um, what was great about the opportunities I've had? I was really there at the first wave of bringing these channels abroad. And um, we had invented as we went along. So I hate to say this, but I often learned by other people's mistakes, people who may came a year or two before me Mm -hmm. or who were hired before I got hired. And at first, bringing these channels abroad for a lot of people, this was a financial bath, much like it is- Really? Oh, oh, yeah. I'm stunned. I would have thought that this would have been a- gold mine. It took years to become a gold mine. It did. Now it's going to fade again because linear is fading.
0: How, how, so wait, let me, let's digress a little bit. How long of a process was it? Did this go from, gee, we're spending a ton of money and we're not seeing anything to, wow, we put X number of years in and, and the money's
1: just rolling. So, in. so no one will cop to it, but I'd say overall, longer than expected for a lot of people. A lot had to do with People started launching before the markets were even there. Right. So it seemed like a no-brainer. Cable and satellite or cable big in the US, so it's going to be eventually in Europe. And it's going to be eventually in Asia. Was it
0: better to be early than late? Do you run into a competitive disadvantage? For
1: those people who hung in there, started early, had foresight and said, I'm going to live five, 10, 15 years. Of course, they've done well. They have the best position in the market right now. So yes, and there were people, and I admire some, the Redstone for things like that, for hanging in there and wanting to just keep going at it. Those people had foresight. Not everyone else did. How, how long did it take before this actually became profitable? It depends on the channel and the market. Some people- If I said five years, am I out of line? Or? Five years seemed to have been the normal um, okay. business plan projection. But honestly, with uh, some of the businesses I launched, we got into first year profitability. Mm -hmm. Others took a lot longer. And still others for other people may not have made money to this day.
0: So let's talk a little bit about books. Everybody always loves this segment. I get requests all the time. Hey, what what were the books that somebody recommended? So tell me some of your favorite books that either relate to this field or are
1: wholly unrelated. I'm a big fiction guy. Uh Uh-huh. So I jotted down those guys, the, who's really influenced me throughout my life. When I was a young person, Jersey Kosinski uh-huh. blew my mind. That was Being There and Painted Bird.
0: By the and, way, be, Being There eventually becomes the Peter Sellers movie. Correct. Painted Bird. I don't remember this was what, his, what became of that. He.
1: But that was a big book. Yeah, a young boy who escaped the Holocaust and led a mm-hmm. group of refugees, um, but gripping, intense. And at the time, there were not a lot of books like that other than uh, nonfiction um, descriptions of what happened. Um, I was really influenced as a teen by Garcia Marquez, A Hundred Years of Solitude. I still consider that my favorite novel. Um, I love Philip Roth. I mean, I'm very happy Bob Dylan got the Nobel Prize. Wait, before... let,
0: let's go back before you um, So again, same same age, same mm-hmm. demographic background. I was a little annoyed at Portnoy's Complaint for writing my autobiography before I had a chance <laughs> to write it. And I don't know if you had a similar and sort my of-
1: mind. I read it as a teenager. Right,
0: right. I was, I was literally a teenager on the beach when I read it. And- I was like, how is somebody allowed to even write this stuff? It's amazing. And now, but look at- And this. hilarious. One and of the funniest how... books I ever read. Oh, it, it just, it, I don't know if it's today, if a 17-year-old picked up that book, if it would be as funny to them as it was to it, it, me. It's,
1: it's not, but it established the genre. No right. one was talking with that kind of profanity personally about sex, and it, there would be no Woody Allen if it wasn't even for that book. That, I mean, he, that's he, somewhat he, true. I, I could certainly see that that that- Progression. He, there would be no Larry David uh, for that book. I think he started that all. But then if you look at his transformation, if you look at some of his later ones, like Indignation, they, they could be two totally hu- different human beings. Right. Um, What's the most recent book he just put out? Uh, I guess, would it be Indignation? I mean, they just made that into then a movie. What was the
0: one right before that? Everyman. Um, okay.
1: So, uh, and, you know, these last several books have been thinner, sparer, moving plot against america you know everyone's been pointing to that as what foreshadowed what happened last night mm-hmm. um so I, I think he he really was and is the most worthy author of the nobel prize and um one day he'll get his due i really like a french author, Michel welbeck uh-huh. who's just mind-blowing and and just his last couple not so much but um what what's your favorite title of his I like a lot of people like Atomized, but mine is Platform is is a novel he wrote, which really blew me away. Just I think he, he he's fearless. He broke a lot of norms with that. Mm-hmm. Um a nonfiction book which really moved me, and I gotta say, probably really I'd recommend it to anyone is Zeitune by Dave Eggers. This is about someone who survived Hurricane Katrina, Muslim uh-huh. man. What happened to him? Muslim building contractor who... And this is non-fiction. Non-fiction. Zeit? Zeitun. Zeitun. That's the, the fellow's last name. Great guy who was saving people at businesses and treated quite unfairly by the authorities because oh, sure. of who he was. Um, that could, moved one, me. Could, one can imagine how that plays out. That moved me. Um, I uh, really liked... Um, I just read Jonathan Safran Foer's new novel, Here I Am. Mm-hmm. I liked a lot um especially as it went on it, it, it was very thought provoking um Sacred Games is a Man Booker prize runner up from India by uh-huh. Vikram Chandra that really someone influenced someone else mentioned reference Vikram Chandra and I don't remember who it was I'll have to I'll have to take a closer look great novel and I really liked it really I still think about it, it was so creative the 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 Yiddish policemen's union the um Shaban book uh huh. Where it's an alternative history. Um, My wife read it. I haven't. I haven't gotten to so it. So after the war, World War II, Israel is not created, and instead the U.S. gives uh, a homeland to Jews in and Sitka, Alaska. Right. And how that all develops, and there's a there's a fuse on it because the the it's going to end after I think it was 50 years. The mm. the gift of the franchise. So um. But the world he created and the way he wrote uh, that that book really meant a uh, lot. You know,
0: there's been a run of alternative yes. historical realities. The frame of reference for me has always been Philip K. Dick's "Man in the High Castle," which a talk show host wakes up and the, is surprised to discover that World War II didn't play out the way we all recall. The U.S. lost to Germany and Japan, who have divided up the U.S. and are um, in the process of absorbing it to the, the parent company countries, and it's just he's infamous for multiple layers of, sure. of reality. But I love the concept. of Did you of see those. the show on Amazon? I just started watching it a couple of months ago, and um, it's unbelievable. Um, it,
1: it I thought it was so good. The
0: quality yes. of of how it looks in the set design, and they really didn't. Ama- you could see there's some real money behind. We were talking about this earlier. They are not afraid to spend money on stuff, and it and, and it that comes made the through.
1: difference because you know what? If you cheaped out on showing graphically what this alternative universe, it would, would not like, have worked. It would have failed. You had
0: to get a certain tone and a certain tenor, and the way it looks and feels, and the way they do the maps and some of the i uh, i iconography and and the way uh, like they. The Nazi symbols are Nazi symbols, but it's not just black and red swastikas. Right, it's, it's integrating the
1: U.S. Uh, flag. Yeah, and it's a, it's be, a little. Really, it's much more interesting and sophisticated than. I, I think they nailed it. I mean, to me, that after seeing that, that's when I really started developing this theory. It's not original, I guess that. In that kind of format, with that kind of money, where you're not doing commercials, where you could do a 118 minute episode or whatever, they're just taking storytelling to a whole different place than basic cable, and certainly that broadcast can. Season two is coming on December.
0: I was going to say I'm almost done with season one, and uh, I'll I'll binge it over the holidays and and get ready for season two. I've also loved some of the comedies like Catastrophe. It's all great, uh, which is so interesting and, and. just n- not anything you would ever see on on U.S. television. No. And I used to love these shows on on BBC. Like Coupling was this hilarious. You know, I always thought Friends was kind of toothless. It was just a, 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 a randy, funny version of uh, a uniquely British version of 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 six young people uh, yeah. engaging in everything they engage in. And they tried to do in the United States and they just destroyed No, it failed. And then they actually turned that concept, if you've watched the Matt LeBlanc show episodes, it's about bringing over this really intelligent, well-written show from London uh, in in a a boys' school with all the class issues and everything else. And they bring it over to the US and they make the headmaster into a hockey coach. Like they couldn't dumb it down anymore. (laughs) And then it's about the battle between the writers, the actors. And it's very much a, I, I loved Larry Sanders' show. This is very much yeah. along the, uh, but I'm supposed to be asking you about books, not talking about <laughs> no, television. Um, any other books you want to reference, nonfiction or fiction? Um, that's that's a good uh, you know,
1: run. Yeah, I'm reading The uh, Association of Small Bombs. Is that the uh, novel? That was also, I think, a Man Booker runner-up. Was it this year or that last year? I just started it. See, I um, wish I had more time for novels. Ninety percent of what I read is
0: nonfiction, or or biography, or history, or or market related.
1: But um, I have a list of novels. I'm just dying to see. Well, you know, my teeth the, into. the travel I had to do. the I travel so much abroad. Twelve hour, fourteen hour plane rides. This is the only reason I've been able right. to read. And this is the only reason that I literally is flying back from Asia. And I'm not boasting, or maybe I sound pathetic, but I watched. All ten episodes of *Man the High Castle*, uh-huh. all of them, on one trip back. I watched ten hours worth of it. I couldn't put it down.
0: That that's uh, that's fascinating. Do, you, are you using physical books or is it a Kindle or something? No, I
1: I really, um, if it's important to me, especially fiction, I, I'll only. It's going to be my old school little thing. I'm only going to use the physical book.
0: I have a Kindle in my my briefcase, but if I'm home and I want to read something, I, like you're traveling, I don't. I used to go on vacation. I'd bring eight books. I'd read four of them. Yeah, you you're dragging like a whole suitcase full of books. Now that doesn't happen. You go on vacation. You bring a Kindle, but it's still not the same as a physical. book. It's not book the same. Me. And
1: I like finishing the book. I like putting it in my bookshelf. Been right. doing that for years. Right. You know, and in some ways, I suppose it's like people who do deals and they want their Lucite cube. Right. You know, it's your Lucite cube. You read it. I remember right. I read it, and uh, that, I hope we don't hilarious. lose that. Yeah.
0: Um. All right. So beyond books. We, we talked about what's changed in the industry. What do you think the next shifts are going to be in in streaming video,
1: video on demand, and just
0: generally in in entertainment and content pre- creation?
1: So I was at a conference recently, and I was in a minority. They said, will TV be all apps? And apps, all apps. All apps. And I said yes, and people said, that's that's far-fetched. But let me explain by what I mean. Um, Right now, he's proprietary non-internet technologies to not stream but but transmit right cable to your household broadcast or or right these are not scalable efficient technologies they're going to come under more pressure as the market's decline because you just show- for
0: cuz of cost
1: cuz of cost and because of scale because less and less people are going to be using it right uh, now streaming is uh, it's it's self-improving every day. If you want to s- improve your cable network overnight and do a whole bunch of things, you may have to ex- take out boxes, rip out cords. Internet's very different. It's becoming very robust. So the future, which I think is not too long from now, everything will be streamed. It may look like you can watch CNN, right. and it looks like linear and whatever, but soon I think the whole technological base of TV will be based on IP protocol. So in a sense, that is an app. All right. You may not have to download it. it doesn't look like you buy it in the but iTunes But it's store. not.
0: It's not the same. It's as, not the as same, as and it's IP,
1: accounts. and that will lead us to a whole world where uh, you can do. Ama- you'll be able to do amazing things with your channel, or not even watch a channel. You'll be able to watch the on-demand elements, the social commentary elements. I think that's where it's all going. So that's why I say the world is going to be looking more like apps than it looks today. And and
0: my last two and favorite questions, if, if a millennial or recent college grad came to you and said, hey, I'm interested in a career in, in television and video and content,
1: what sort of advice would you give them? I'd say digital social marketing is whoever figures that out and knows it the way Don Draper knew advertising is gonna do really well in life because that conventional way of advertising is going, gone with that next generation. Um, That's a big business, um, I think. And then content creation and just really being on the cutting edge of that um, will continue. People are always going to want to see good TV and the U.S. tends to excel at that. The difference between us and a lot of other places in the world aren't as big as it was 20 years ago because the technology is now closing that gap and allowing people to, you know, go into a a Mac and, and create things that would have required a $20 million investment in an Avid and a whole bunch of other things back 10 years ago. So, um, I think those are the two areas.
0: And then my final question, what is it that you know about content, video, overseas, uh, licensing today that you wish you knew when you started this career path 20 plus
1: years ago? Um, I would have gone much, much, even though we knew the internet, everyone says, is going to eat our lunch. Um, it eventually will. I would have personally gone much bigger into all of these stocks back in the mid-90s. Um,
0: Despite so you, the dot-com crash. You,
1: Yeah, yeah. You got to hang in there if you believe, because I think so we always my whole career have been talking about how the internet's really going to change everything but now we're seeing it and i think people thought it's going to profoundly change everything but in my view in the next i don't know if it's 5 10 or 15 years it it is going to be everything and so how far
0: along the transition from analog to digital from i love the expression meat space yes to online how far along that process are
1: we so you know there used to be the last mile then right. there's the last 100 feet. There's the last 10 feet, which was about six, seven years ago. And then that was breached. Now I call it the last three seconds of patience. Uh-huh. That's it. Because now you get these apps and your TV. It's kind of confusing. But each new generation of TVs makes it a lot and lot more seamless. The minute becomes entirely, you don't even have to think about what you're pressing. And you don't know if it's Netflix or if it's CNN Live. Uh-huh. That changes everything. And you know what? That's the easiest part. It took trillions of dollars to wire the world with fiber optics. That was the last, got you the last mile. Then to get you to that last 10 feet, people were digging up your driveways. I remember Fios was in my house for a week and a half. I don't know how they ever made money off of putting me onto Fios. But now this last thing, this is going to be, this is happening right now. And someone's going to really figure out how to integrate all of these experiences seamlessly over your television set, over your devices, and it's game over and it's a different game then. That's where it's all going.
0: Bruce, thank you for doing this and being so generous with your time. My pleasure. We've been speaking with Bruce Tuchman. He was with MGM International, AMC um, Global, and a number of other channels he helped bring worldwide. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure to look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes. And you could see the other hundred and something plus uh, shows we've done. Uh, Be sure and write us. We love to hear your comments, feedbacks, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. I would be remiss if I did not thank Taylor Riggs, our booker, and Michael Batnick, our head of research, for helping to produce everything. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America Merrill Lynch. Committed to bringing higher finance to lower carbon. Named the most innovative investment bank for climate change and sustainability by The Banker. That's the power of global connections. Bank of America North America. Member FDIC.